0: The following sermon is by Josh Tancordo, the teaching pastor at Redeeming Grace Church in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Redeeming Grace is a gospel-centered church that values rich biblical teaching and authentic Christian community. Learn more by visiting our website at redeeminggracepittsburgh.com. Pray with me. Lord, that is our prayer, that this morning you would be our lamp, Lord, that you would open our eyes to see the glories of the gospel as we never have before. Lord, we talk about the gospel week after week after week. We describe ourselves as a gospel centered church, but oh, the dangers of beginning to regard the gospel as yesterday's news. Lord, let it not be so. At our church, we pray, Lord, that you would just give us hearts that are sensitive to see the wonders of what we believe, Lord. Such basic truths, so that a young child could understand, and yet so profound, Lord. Help us to see that this morning. We pray that as we look at Isaiah chapter 65 here, Lord, that you would help us to understand this passage and see in it everything you want us to see. And Lord, we pray that you would cause these truths to find a place in our hearts. We ask this in Christ's name, amen. There's no question that this world offers us many things that are very enjoyable. In fact, they're so enjoyable that it's, easy to set our hearts on these things. Uh, For example, I remember when I was a kid, maybe about nine or 10 years old, I had my heart set on getting a Game Boy. Uh, More specifically, it was a Game Boy Color that I wanted. And I thought that if I could just get this Game Boy, that all of my problems would be solved and all of my desires would be fulfilled. And that might sound like a bit of an exaggeration, but, but it's really not an exaggeration of how I felt. I actually remember telling my mom that if she would just get me this Game Boy for that upcoming Christmas, that I would never want anything else or ask for anything else ever again for my entire life. And so she got it for me. And you can probably imagine what happened, right? When I opened that... Game Boy on Christmas morning, I was the most excited kid in the world, right? And I played with that thing for hours and hours and hours, and it was my favorite possession in the, the whole world. But eventually, of course, I lost interest in the Game Boy. Um, and Uh, I guess maybe it was about a year, two years, three years. It took a while, but eventually I did lose interest in it. And that's the way it is with everything in this world, isn't it? Even the best things don't satisfy us in any deep or enduring way. And yet even as adults, we seem to have a hard time understanding that. We might not be looking to a handheld video game for most of us, but we nevertheless do often look to other things. Uh, perhaps it's a material possession, like a nice house or a new car. Or maybe it's a spouse or kids that we look to as our source of ultimate meaning and satisfaction. Or maybe it's advancing in our career and gaining a certain level of notoriety that we think will make us truly happy. And yet, the strangest thing always ends up happening. Even if we succeed in obtaining these things that we set our hearts on, there always seems to be something missing, something that we can't quite put our finger on. The life we've always wanted somehow always eludes us. No matter what we obtain or what we achieve, true and lasting happiness always just seems to be just barely out of reach in this present world. So what should we make of all this? Well, I find the words of C.S. Lewis, very insightful here. He writes, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. In fact, let me read to you, it's so good, let me read to you his full quotation in its original context. Lewis writes, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger. Well, there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there is such a thing as water. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably my earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. If that is so, I must take care on the one hand, never to despise or be unthankful for these earthly blessings. And on the other hand, never to mistake them for Thus, something else of which they are only a kind of copy or echo or mirage. I must keep my, alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find until after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of life to press on to that other country and help others do the same. In other words, the fact that we have desires which never seem to be fully satisfied by anything in this world should lead us to the conclusion that we were made for another world. A world that's similar to this one, yet decidedly different at the same time. And as it turns out, the Bible tells us that this is indeed the case and provides us with a detailed description of what this other world is like. And that's what we find in the passage of scripture we'll be looking at today, Isaiah chapter 65. As we'll discover, uh, the main idea of this passage is that God will create new heavens and a new earth. That wording comes straight from verse 17, where God says, behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. Yet before God makes that declaration, he first spends the first half of the chapter talking about why this new creation is so necessary. He begins by making it clear that he's had it with the sins of his people Israel. He states in verses two and three, I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices, a people who provoke me to my face continually. He then says in verse six, I will not keep silent, but I will repay. I will indeed repay into their lap. Yet we learn in verses 8 through 16 that God will nevertheless spare a remnant of his people from this judgment he's going to inflict because a remnant of them are godly. And beginning in verse 17, he offers this godly remnant the hope of new heavens and a new earth. So, what I'd like to do this morning is simply walk through verses 17 through 25 together and observe some of the features of this new creation that God has in store for his people. First, notice the terminology God uses to describe the new creation. New heavens and a new earth. So, right off the bat, we can discern a difference between the way this passage speaks of our eternal dwelling place and the way, on the other hand, most people and even most Christians today speak of that eternal dwelling. The popular notion uh, of what's often called heaven features people basically sitting in clouds and playing harps all day (laughs) and not really doing much of anything. To be honest, I find it a little underwhelming. Um, In fact, I'll go ahead and say it sounds downright boring to me. But thankfully, we see already in this passage that our real eternal dwelling uh, is going to be a lot different than that. It's described not as heaven, but as new heavens and a new earth. And by the way, this isn't the only place in the Bible where we find this terminology. We also find it in the next chapter in Isaiah, also in 2 Peter 3:13, and finally in Revelation 21:1. And the reason this terminology of new heavens and a new earth is so significant is because what God's planning For the future isn't for his people to escape from this pleasant world, but rather for him to redeem and renew this world. I mean, think about it. If God just sort of evacuated us out of this world in order to take us to some ethereal place called heaven for all eternity, that wouldn't really be victory for him. It sounds more. Like defeat. Because if God originally designed creation to be a beautiful place where he could dwell with his people, but then he has to take his people and retreat to some faraway place called heaven for the rest of eternity, that's defeat. God would be giving up on this world and carrying out his plans elsewhere. Satan would have succeeded in undermining and corrupting God's good creation. Yet we see here that that's not going to happen. God has a plan to restore and renew his creation in the form of new heavens and a new earth. So according to the Bible, it's not so much that we go to heaven but rather that heaven comes to earth. We can see this dynamic quite clearly in Revelation 21, which I mentioned a moment ago. Listen to the way Revelation 21 verses one and two describes it. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. So you can see that this new city, this heavenly city, New Jerusalem it's called, comes down where? Out of the heavens, out of the sky, to the earth. See that? Heaven comes to earth. And that's our eternal dwelling. God doesn't whisk us away to some other place. He instead brings comprehensive renewal to the place we're in right now. And going back to our main passage in Isaiah 65, we can see just how comprehensive that renewal will be. To finish out verse 17, God says, for behold, I create new heavens and a new earth and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. So think about that. The former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. What would that be like, do you think? Well, just imagine yourself five minutes into this new creation and a word comes into your mind cancer. Yet for the life of you, you can't seem to remember what cancer is. And then another word comes into your mind, terrorism. Yet again, no matter how much you rack your brain, you can't remember anything for some reason about terrorism. It's like that file's been deleted from your brain. And it's the same way with many other words like poverty, grief, pain, abuse, war, even death. You draw a blank whenever you think or you try to think about any of these words. That's similar, maybe not a perfect comparison, but similar to what it'll be like. For the former things, in the words of this passage, not to be remembered or even come into mind. And again, to reference the parallel description in Revelation, we read in Revelation 21.4 that God will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. It's incredible. Then continuing on in our main passage, we read this in verses 18 and 19. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. So this new creation will be a place of eternal joy. And notice the name God gives to this place. In both of these verses, 18 and 19, he calls it Jerusalem. And perhaps you remember that name from Revelation 21 two, that I read a moment ago, where it described the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. So what's the deal here with this new creation being referred to as Jerusalem? Jerusalem. Well, as many of you may know, the earthly ancient city of Jerusalem was the capital of both Israel and later of Judah. And not only that, but it was also the place where God's temple was located. And inside of that temple was God's manifest presence in an inner room called the Holy of Holies. That's what made Jerusalem so special, and that's why the new creation is referred to as Jerusalem. It's a place where God dwells in his full manifest presence. Only now, in the new creation, uh, there won't be that curtain of the temple separating God's people from his presence. The Bible says that when Jesus died, that curtain was torn in two. And so now God will dwell with his people in a way that hasn't been seen since the Garden of Eden. That's what makes this new creation so wonderful. That's why it's described here as a place where God's people can, quote, be glad and rejoice forever. God is the source of all joy he's infinitely delightful and so to be in his presence for all eternity without being hindered by anything that would separate us from him like sin is the greatest joy in the entire universe it's the joy of which all earthly joys are but echoes and shadows. So if we had any sense at all, (laughs) we would be pursuing this joy and setting our sights on this joy above all other joys. We then read in verses 21 through 23 about the inhabitants of this city. It says, they shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be. And my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. For they shall breed the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. So we see from these verses that the new creation will be a place both of great prosperity, with houses and vineyards and plenty of fruit, as well as a place of great security. Nobody will plunder God's people or prevent them from enjoying, as it says, the work of their hands. And perhaps that's kind of hard for some of us to really appreciate, uh, because most of us don't really have to worry about being plundered, right? Like when when I leave my house, during the day, I'm not worried about like some group of you know, paramilitary bandits raiding my neighborhood and and uh, plundering my house and kidnapping my family. Right? But that was actually a very legitimate concern for many people in the ancient world, and uh, maybe even in certain parts of the world today. That might be a concern, but not as much for us. Yet, hopefully, we all nevertheless understand how fleeting wealth can be. How uncertain everything in this world is. I mean, it's all just here one moment and gone the next. Yet that won't be the case in the new creation. It'll be a place of complete security. And notice here that work Will be a part of this new creation. Did you notice that? (laughs) We're gonna build houses and plant vineyards and enjoy the work of our hands. That's a lot different than us just sitting up in the clouds playing harps all the time, right? Work was present in the Garden of Eden before the first humans rebelled against God, and it'll be present in the new creation as well. And it'll be work as it was always meant to be. There won't be any unreasonable bosses or stressful situations or any of the things that we commonly associate with work now that make it less than desirable and perhaps burdensome at times. Instead, we'll find great meaning and fulfillment in our work as we engage in what God has given us to do for the glory of God. And by the way, hopefully this is an encouragement for us even now to work for the glory of God. If you're employed, understand that your job isn't just a way for you to get a paycheck. Now, it's a way for you to contribute to society. And thereby love your neighbor and loving our neighbor is of course a key component of our loving god and so hopefully you're able to approach work with that mentality that the things you do every day are filled with meaning if you approach them with the right attitude that that you are contributing to the welfare of other people. You're contributing to society and are thereby loving your neighbor and loving God. And that, of course, goes not only for those who are paid for their work, but also for those who have roles that don't receive a paycheck, like a a stay-at-home mom or maybe you're someone who's trying to use their retirement in a fruitful way. And then finally, God says this in verses 24 and 25, before they call, I will answer. While they're yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. These verses paint a picture of perfect harmony. We see in verse 24 that they'll, will enjoy complete harmony with God in that before we even call to him, he'll answer us. Our prayers to him and our relationship with him won't be hindered in any way by sin or by the relational dysfunction that sin brings. Likewise, verse 25 tells us that even in nature, predators and prey shall graze together. And even the most ferocious beasts will become herbivores, And I believe this harmony in nature is intended to picture for us the harmony that will exist between human beings as well. There won't be any more conflicts or wars or animosity, just people dwelling together in perfect love for God and one another. And again, keep in mind that all of this is intended to picture a kind of return to God's original creation as seen in Genesis in the Garden of Eden. If you picture the Bible as a timeline, which is very appropriate either way since the Bible really is just one big story, creation and the new creation are like the bookends of that timeline. And that parallel, that symmetry between the two is brought out very intentionally by the biblical authors. For example, in Genesis, we learn that the Garden of Eden featured both a tree of life and a river. Both of these features are mentioned specifically in Genesis 2, 10 and 11, the tree of life and a river. And then if you go to the very last chapter of the Bible, Revelation 22, the new creation is described as follows. Revelation 22, 1 and 2. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Remember, this is New Jerusalem, right? Also, on either side of the river, The tree of life, well, there it is again, right? With its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. So both the tree of life and the water of life link the new creation with God's original creation. It's not an accident. (laughs) And in between those two bookends, You have everything else that takes place in the Bible. You have the first humans rebelling against God in the Garden of Eden and plunging this entire world into a state of fallenness and brokenness and sin and misery. And then you have God establishing a special relationship with a guy named Abraham and subsequently with his his descendants after him, known as the Israelites. And God called the Israelites to be a new kind of people who would show the world what it means to live in fellowship with God and in accordance with God's ways. But, unfortunately, if you've read the Old Testament, you know that Israel failed miserably in that calling and rebelled against God almost continuously, one generation after another. And yet God knew that would happen which is why we find promise after promise on almost every page of the Old Testament that God was going to rescue and restore not only Israel, but all humanity and even all creation back to the way he originally intended for it to be. And then finally, After 400 years of silence, with no new revelation from God at all, Jesus entered this world. Even though he was fully divine, he came as a real human being. Fully God and fully human. And even his very name revealed what he was going to do. Since the name Jesus means he saves. And we read in the four gospel narratives of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that that's exactly what he did. He began by living a perfectly righteous life without sinning even a single time. And he ministered to people in remarkable, even miraculous ways. Enabling deaf people to hear and blind people to see and lame people to walk, even raising the dead. And his purpose in all of these miracles, in addition to simply helping people, was to give this world a glimpse of what God has in store for the future. These miracles were the first glimmer of the coming dawn. Of the day when God would bring about not just a partial reversal, but a complete reversal of all the fallenness and brokenness of this ruined world. But in order for that to happen, sin had to be dealt with in a decisive way. And since God's holy, he's not one to just sweep our sins under the rug and pretend they don't exist. Sin has to be punished. And the natural expectation would be for us to bear that punishment in hell for all eternity. Since, after all, it's we who have sinned against God. But in an act of incomprehensible grace, Jesus, the very Son of God, remember, voluntarily suffered the punishment for our sins on the cross. God the Father's wrath was poured out on him. So it wouldn't have to be poured out on us. And then the climax of the story happened when Jesus resurrected from the dead. Because his resurrection is a foretaste and a foreshadowing of what will eventually happen to us if we repent of our sins and put our trust not in our own goodness or our own religiosity, our own efforts, anything, but instead put our trust in Jesus alone. You might say that Jesus in his resurrection was the prototype. Kind of like a prototype of a car or something like that. You've probably seen pictures of these shiny new cars that automakers love to display in auto shows all around the world. You know, the point of that prototype is, of course, to show what's coming in the future. And that's the point of the resurrection as well. In the resurrection of Jesus, God was displaying to the world what's in store for his people. The resurrection is a picture of what God will do with countless others all around the world as he raises them up and gives them glorified resurrection bodies, physical bodies. And that will happen in the new heavens and new earth. So that's the story of the Bible. (laughs) From creation to new creation. And perhaps the most encouraging part is unlike that original creation, this new creation won't be able to be undone by sin. Remember, we saw in Isaiah, what's one of the features? It's completely secure. Satan will never step foot in this new creation. Nor will anything else that has the potential to undermine or even diminish the perfection of this paradise. So in light of all this, Let me encourage you to live every day of your life in light of and in joyful anticipation of this new creation. I mean, guys, understand that if all of this is true, and as Christians, we believe that it is, this changes everything. (laughs) Like, really, it does. If this present life, As long as it might seem, 70, 80 years, if all this is just a short preface to an eternal existence in the new creation, that changes everything. I mean, for starters, just think about how long eternity is when compared to our present life. Um, I mean, I love the illustration of the rope that I heard one time. This rope represents eternity. And uh, as you can see, it's, it's pretty long, right? And this part of the rope right here in between my hands represents the entire amount of time that we spend on this world, right? We are born, we grow up, We live as as an adult, and then we die. All of that takes place in this part of the rope right here. And even though it's such a tiny part of the rope, what do we do so often? (laughs) So often we live as if this is all that matters. Like we ignore the the whole rest of the rope that goes on and on and that represents our eternal existence and instead the only thing we can think about is this little part of the rope right here. I mean, it's pretty crazy (laughs) when you think about it and yet that's the way we often think. I mean, even as Christians, we probably think that way more often than we care to admit, at least functionally speaking. We're just so so fixated on this this tiny part right here. Yet God wants us to live in light of eternity with our gaze fixed on the new heavens and the new earth described in Isaiah 65. So very briefly, let me comfort you and let me challenge you. The comfort that we have in light of the new creation is that regardless of how much we suffer in this present world, regardless of what difficulties or hardships we experience, we know that this world isn't all there is. We know that it's all just temporary and will soon be eclipsed by an existence That's indescribably wonderful. (laughs) And in which, as we've seen, suffering won't even be a category in our minds. That's the hope that we have. And where our gaze should be directed. And listen, if your heart is set on having your best life now, And you're instead, you find yourself having your worst life now? Well, yeah, I mean, you're going to be depressed. Maybe even disillusioned with God eventually, or just begin to enter a state of despair. But if your heart is set on the new heaven and new earth, then anything that happens in this present life will only serve to deepen your longing for that life to come. Also, having given some words of comfort, let me also challenge you to stop living as if this world is all that matters. Stop planning your schedules as if this world is all that matters. Stop ordering your priorities as if this world is all that matters. Stop spending money as if this world is all that matters. Instead, do it all in light of eternity. In the words of Jesus in Matthew 6, 19 through 21, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart is. Oh, there it is. <laughs> the key to the whole thing. There your heart will be also. So live your life with the singular focus, the singular goal of building up eternal wealth.